on the last study that we took actually on Daniel, we, if I remember rightly, were thinking about the background. I remember that the following week we read quite a number of passages about Babylon. <clears throat> we should have something now of a background uh, for this book. I'd just like to take up exactly where we left off. I'm afraid we can't do, go over anything really that we've said. I only hope that everyone can remember something of it, even if not very much. Um, you will remember that Daniel and the three passed uh, their three-year course uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's educational scheme for aliens, uh, particularly those of royal blood and noble blood, uh, when he wanted uh, such for his uh, service, uh, foreign service in his government. You will remember that these four passed it, and very quickly Daniel became one of Nebuchadnezzar's favorites. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was an autocrat. Uh, it was the age of autocracy. And uh, there has been very little, even in our day, that comes near the dictatorship of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he was a man not only of great learning and of great ability, but he could be, as was often the case in those days, an exceedingly cruel despot. These four passed with honors, and as far as we know, they all uh, made their mark um, very quickly upon Nebuchadnezzar's mind, especially, as we have said, Daniel. To Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar, which means Baal, may he protect his life. <coughs> a rather terrible name for a God-fearing man. If you will remember back all the scriptures about Baal and the Baalim. And so on. Bel is the Babylon, Babylonian or Chaldee form of Baal. Baal, may he protect his life. It was during Nebuchadnezzar's reign that uh, Daniel became governor of Babylon and head of the wise men. You remember very quickly he rose to that position when he was only in actual fact a lad, well really only a lad of 22. He rose to the position of governor of Babylon. This is a remarkable fact. But do remember that Nebuchadnezzar was only himself around about the same age. And as we are seeing even today in the States, men often gather around them, men of their own age. When there's a change of administration in a, in a government, sometimes they want to bring in men of their own age. When Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne, he was the one who was destined to bring Babylonia or the Babylonian Empire into perhaps its greatest phase of all. He was the great architect of the uh, city Babylon uh, as we know it. He was only a young man and uh, so that may explain one of the reasons why he was prepared to get put into the hands of so young a man so much authority. It was during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, at the very early part of it, that uh, Daniel became governor of Babylon. I don't know how, what we would call, what equivalent 
a governor of Babylon would have, whether it was Lord Mayor, I don't know, but it was certainly um, a very high, exalted position uh, over the whole province of Babylon and the city of Babylon. And when you think of Babylon and those descriptions we read of it, you can understand what a tremendous place it was for a young fellow of 22 to occupy. In succeeding reigns, Daniel was to rise to even higher positions, not merely just governor of Babylon and head of the wise men, the astrologers or magicians, uh, but um, he was to uh, rise to greater uh, positions still. And furthermore, as far as we can make out from the word of God, although this is conjecture, that Daniel continued in government service until the first year of Cyrus. If you look at Daniel chapter 1 and uh, verse 21, it um, mentions this fact. And in a sense, Daniel chapter 1 is an introduction to the whole book, <coughs> although it is in actual fact uh, an in uh, integral part of the first six chapters, it is an introduction also to the whole book in the same way that the last chapter is a conclusion, though it's an integral part of the last six chapters. And this verse 21 says, and Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. But if you look at Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1, you will read, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. So it would seem that there's a contradiction there. It would almost seem as if Daniel actually continued until the third uh, year of the reign of Cyrus. I think there is a possible explanation. Is it that Daniel remained in government service <laughs> from the second or third year of Nebuchadnezzar right through to the first year of Cyrus when he retired? I don't know. But if that is so, as you can see, he was uh, a very old man when he retired. He was something in the region of about, um, he must have been about 84, yes, 80, 87 or 89, 88, 89, something <coughs> like that. So uh, that may be the explanation of that very interesting little um, note there in Daniel 1 that he continued until the first year of the reign of Cyrus a very long and active life his life was a story of crisis after crisis as far as we have it recorded anyway of test after test and then deliverance after deliverance and then uh, vision after vision and then more wonderful than ever, advance after advance. The whole book of Daniel is the most remarkable document lo looked at from that point of view. It, the whole thing is a succession. Daniel always seems to be in trouble. He seems to step out of one crisis into the next. He seems to move from one vision to another vision. He seems to move from one deliverance to a further deliverance. He seems, all and above all, he seems to move from one advance to a greater advance. There comes a point in the story when you just can hardly believe that there could be anything more for, for, for Daniel to possess. Uh, he has been raised to such heights 
that one just wonders if it's possible for him to obtain yet great to attain to yet greater heights. But the story is a remarkable one. And it is simply because it is so remarkable uh, that I want us to look at it um, this evening from that, in that light. It's only when we see <coughs> the chapters of this book in chronological order that we realize uh, what I've just said. Now this chart, I wasn't able to put any um, heading or title on it, so it may not be intelligible to everyone. Um, is the book of Daniel arranged in chronological order? Now if we take the book of Daniel and every single chapter except for 3 and 4 is dated and chapter 3 and 4 uh, we can narrow down to uh, a very small compass of time indeed. In fact the Septuagint version gives us a date for it. In other words really we have no difficulty about the chapters of Daniel or the events in Daniel and the visions of Daniel. We can tie them down more or less to the times uh, in which they were. For, for instance Daniel chapter 3 and chapter 4 are, if you look at them, uh, to do with Nebuchadnezzar and therefore we have to tie them down to the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. We know the reign of Nebuchadnezzar so we know that there's a certain phase or range of time in which uh, uh, we have to place them. Now when you take this, uh, this the book of Daniel and arrange it chronologically certain things, certain very wonderful things, begin to take shape. We can see, I think, by means of this chart, just how linked Daniel's crises and tests were with his uh, advances and visions. And I believe that will, might be this evening, if we don't learn anything else, that might be the one lesson that we can all get. I'm sorry if there are some of you around there who won't be able to see this. On this outside uh, column here, we have the age of Daniel. It may be a surprise to many of you that uh, Daniel must have been in the region of, um, something in the region of 88 when he went into the lion's den. That may be a surprise to you. On the most conservative estimate that it is possible to give, he must have been 86. If we say that when he was brought into Jerusalem, uh, this is based on the age of 16. That means he was only a lad of 16 when he started his three-year government course. He uh, passed out with honours when he was 19. We can't very well make him much younger than that. Otherwise, it means that he must have been a lad of 18 when he took over Babylon, the province of, ba of Babylon. We just can't make him any younger. So if we say that he was 16, and I feel that's the most, cons that's the most conservative, uh, he was probably a little older than that, um, well, then he was 19 um, when he um, passed out of his three-year course uh, into government service, and he was 88 if that is the case, when he faced the lions. He was 92 when we have his last recorded visions. Now he may well have been an older man than that. So I want you to see straight away that this column gives his age. And you will notice straight away that there's a 40-year gap 
between uh, these chapters. Here, there was a 40 year silence, of which we know nothing. There may have been many crises, I've no doubt there were. Many trials that he went through, which are not recorded, because we only have those that are recorded which um, can uh, instruct us uh, in the things that God wants us to be instructed in. These are approximate dates, in the same way that these are approximate. The next column is approximate dates. They could vary within a matter of 20 years, but no more. But the great point is, uh, that even if they do, it doesn't make any difference to the actual uh, uh, record. If this one varies, then they all vary. Do you understand? There's no variation of each with the other. It means that if this was uh, not 606, but uh, 20 years uh, uh, later, then this will be, that will be, and all the rest of it. You see, they're all followed. Here are the chapters, and then we have something of the rearrangement of the book. Let me just go through because it may help you to follow through with this. Afterwards you can come up if you can't see it. I, I had a great job to get the whole lot on the board and even then I haven't got all that I'd like to put on the board. We need a bigger board. Um, the, 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 what can we learn when we chronologically arrange the book of Daniel? We learn a lot of very remarkable things and I believe they are key to a tremendous amount. First thing, I call it the first test we got in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel was 19. He was actually, by this reckoning, 16 when he started. And it was as a boy of 16 that the biggest test of his life came to him. It was a very simple test. Now, we should be very practical this evening, I hope, uh, trust, that, that, and therefore we ought to gain some lessons from it. Often, our lives hinge upon the tiniest and smallest issue in our lives. Again and again, you take Joseph. What would have happened if Joseph had succumbed to Potiphar's wife? There would have been no story as we know it. On that one little thing upon which many would have succumbed and many would have just said, oh, well, he couldn't help it. There's a lot of excuse for it and everything else. The whole story of Joseph depends. And how many other stories are there that depend on some very small issue in our lives? You know, when the Lord's speaking to us about something, oh, how the devil argues about it. He says it's tripe. He says it's trivial. He says it's all making a mountain out of a molehill and all other kinds of things. And we have no idea. The, the huge realm that hinges upon that one little issue. Now, what was it to do with Daniel? Well, a very simple little thing indeed. Daniel was a captive. He was an exile. He was only a lad of 16. And what happened to him? He was put into a training course. Well, the training course had a, um, a, a menu arranged for them out of the king, from the king's table. The king had certain food, and he said that they would have the same menu as he. Uh, they were ha to have a portion of the king's bounty, or dainties as it's called. But all it really means is rich food. The rich food of the king, a certain amount was put aside because the king didn't want them sickly. That shows an interesting sideline for him. Didn't want his officials and so on to be sickly looking. He wanted them to look well, look healthy, robust, and be uh, a, a good example, an illustration of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he put aside a certain amount of food. 
Well, why should Daniel and the other three make a fuss about food? Goodness gracious me, isn't that the Lord's provision for them? What a wonderful thing. King's food. We don't all get king's food, especially when we're exiles. What about all the other Jewish exiles in Babylon? They're not feeding on king's food. But there was one point. The king's food was unclean, and it had been offered to idols. Two simple points. There were a lot of things that in the law of Moses were forbidden to a good Jew, a child of God, to eat. And secondly, they were never touched anything that had been offered to the idols because it had become involved with idolatry. Now, Daniel was 16. He'd been separated from his mother and father. Where were his relatives? No one knows where they are, whether we ever had any, whether they died in, in the terrible slaughter of Jerusalem at that time, or what exactly happened. No one knows. Daniel could have so easily succumbed with the other three. But you know what they asked? They went to the king's steward and they said, could they please have just vegetables? That funny word, pulse. Just means vegetables, that's all. Could they just have, could they be vegetarians? Well, the law of God didn't say that they should be vegetarians. But since they couldn't get any meat that was drained of its blood, they would become vegetarians rather than eat anything. Oh, but the king's steward said, do you realize what you'll do? If you let this happen, I'll lose my head. If the king sees you looking all pale and thin and vegetarian looking, he'll say, oh, what's wrong? What's wrong with these Aren't they being fed? Is that man who's in charge of them taking the food for himself and his family, as so often was the case? Very well, then we'll dismiss that man. And dismissal in, a, in the courts of those days was not just being given your ticket and being told to go. It generally meant you lost your head. So he said, I can't possibly do it. You know the story better than I, I think, as to what happened. They went, therefore, not to the chief uh, eunuch, but they went to the man appointed by the chief uh, eunuch, the steward, over the four of them. And they said, look, can we, can we have a, a trial test? Ten days. Possibly they knew that Nebuchadnezzar was out of town or something or wouldn't see them. Ten days. ten days test. You feed us on vegetables only and we'll see whether we look as good as the rest after ten days. All right, he said, I'll do that. I expect he fed rather well on what should have been theirs. That's probably the truth of that statement. Uh, but he allowed them just to have the vegetables. And after ten days, those lads looked firmer, it says, more, more strong, more virile, and more handsome, is the word actually in Hebrew, than all the other youths. That's the story. Now we all know it. We all say, isn't it a wonderful story? Oh, wonderful. Of course, we would have all done that if we'd been in that place, but we wouldn't all have done it at all. The whole point is this. If Daniel and those three had succumbed at the very beginning when they were only lads of 16, the whole story of Daniel, as we know it, would never have been told. It would have been an entirely different story. It all, all revolved upon their compromising on a little issue. Well, they didn't. And what do you think happened? They were favoured. It's a very, very beautiful little thing that says that Nebuchadnezzar favoured them. They had been faithful to the Lord and had refused to compromise when it would have been easy. Now, it's not so easy to compromise when you're big and well-known, when you've got a big position. Because you're frightened of what people might think. You're in the eyes of you. But when you're young and little and unknown, by everyone's much, much easier. How easy it would have been for the four. No, and they were, the four were. Favored. 
When we come to Daniel 2, uh, Daniel was then 22, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Well, you know the story. He dreamed a dream, and he thought, I'm not going to at all charlatans, that whole crowd, uh, frauds. If I tell them what the dream is, they'll easily interpret it. I'm not going to tell them. If they are supposed to be wise men and astrologers and interpreters of dreams, let them tell me the dream that I dreamt. Then we'll know. And the wise men all came and said, look here, we can't do this. God doesn't dwell amongst, amongst flesh and blood, you know, they told him. We just can't do it. All right, he said, if you can't do it, the lot of you will die. That's all. Now, that's quite in keeping with Nebuchadnezzar because it's known as a fact that he slaughtered thousands without turning a hair. All right, then, dog, every wise man in Babylon, uh, in the court, all the court uh, wise men, astrologers, interpreters of dreams, and so on, were so important in those days. The whole lot were going. And as far as we can make out from the story, the slaughter had commenced. Arioch was going round, hounding them out from their homes. They were being taken and being executed immediately. When he came to Daniel, Daniel said, what's this? Arioch said, I, don't you know what's happened? I told him exactly what happened. Oh, Daniel said, could, we, could you ask the king for a stay of execution? And they got on their knees before them and prayed. He told the king, you tell told Arik to tell the king, you tell him, we'll give him the, both the dream and the interpretation now. Now that was faith for a lad of, of 22 uh, and the others uh, to take upon themselves such a tremendous issue. But they took it upon their shoulders. All right, then you know, you know I think the story quite well, exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, Daniel prayed and so did the other... Daniel asked the other three to pray, and he himself prayed, and then he went to bed. And as far as we can make out, he dreamed the same dream. Anyway, it was revealed to him in the night what the dream was. He probably dreamt it, but exactly the same way. Straight to Nebuchadnezzar. And he gave all the glory to the Lord. Now, this is the first real testimony we have uh, in the book of Daniel. He testified to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, I haven't done this. But there is a God in heaven who knows the secrets, and he can reveal them. And he has revealed it to me, I will tell you. He told Nebuchadnezzar the dream. You know the, 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 the dream about that tremendous image with all the different metals and everything else uh, and so on. Well, what was the result of that? Nebuchadnezzar was made governor of Babylon and he asked if the other three could be made governors also and they were and he was made a man who sat in the king's gate. That is uh, one who had the ear of, of the king. So we come to the second <coughs> test. The second test was whether Daniel had faith at all. Whether he, could, he had faith, a response of faith was needed. He had it, the result was another test over, another crisis passed and further advanced. A deliverance. It was as much a deliverance as being delivered out of the den of lions, by the way, but most people are not so excited about it as the den of lions. Fiery furnaces and dens of lions are much more exciting than dreams are being executed in a more... Uh, sort of military and civil way. Um, but when we come to the third test, Daniel was 45. We don't know what happened between those 20 or so years. He was uh, 45, and Nebuchadnezzar got an idea through his dream. And although he acknowledged God uh, uh, because of how Daniel had interpreted his dreams, he decided to build an image, and he built an image of something about 90 feet in height, 
nine feet across. And he started a kind of state worship of this image. And uh, the, the decree was that anyone who refused to bow down to it would be cast into a furnace of fire and slain. Well, you know the story. Where Daniel was, we don't know. Whether he was out of town or whether, because he was a favorite of Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't affected, we don't know. But what we do know is that the three, the other three, refused to bow down. And the result was that they were um, uh, thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, there's a wonderful story there. You know how uh, Nebuchadnezzar gives them a chance. He brings them in. He wasn't so unjust. He says to them, well, look, did you do this? They said, yes. Will you bow down when you hear the band? You bow down? No, we will not. They said, our God is able to deliver, but if he will not, then we shall die. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. You know the story. Nebuchadnezzar saw four of them walking in the fiery furnace. It slew the men that took, put them up into it to cast them in. Because it was so hot, it was heated up seven times more than it was going to be heated. And you know how in the end they came out of the fiery furnace without the smell of singeing upon them, nor any smell of burning at all. And that a state decree was the result of that, which commanded all the peoples of the Babylonian Empire to respect and reverence the god of these three. They were promoted and a state decree. Then when we move on to the um, fourth uh, test, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, the dream we read this evening. And he brings Daniel in to him to uh, interpret the dream. Daniel, as you read from the story, interpreted it for him. But you remember one version says Daniel was aghast. And I should think he was too. It was no easy thing to tell an autocrat like Nebuchadnezzar that he, for his pride and arrogance, God was going to send him mad. Now he was suffering from a form of madness that we call lycanthropy, which is the form of mental instability when a person takes on the posture and the uh, noises of an animal. And it's that form of illness that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, with all his dignity and greatness and intellect, God smote him with a form of mental illness that absolutely humiliated him to the ground and meant that he was hounded out of the Babylon which he'd created and actually lived uh, with the creatures uh, so that his, it's an eyewitness account. His nails became like bird's claws. His hair was long and matted like an animal's. For quite a few years, Nebuchadnezzar was evidently in that state. Before he turned to the Lord, now that's the point. His reason didn't return to him before he turned to the law. So there was something inside, beyond and deeper than his mental instability, that was able to turn to the Lord. And when it turned to the Lord, his reason came back. Not only did his reason come back, came, come back but he was brought back and reinstated. And the end of Nebuchadnezzar was a wonderful one. He became a child of God. So rather remarkable thing, most people don't realize that in his last days, Nebuchadnezzar was a child of God. Whose influence was that? It was Daniel's. You know, when Daniel was facing Nebuchadnezzar and he was hearing that dream, I'm quite sure that if he was the least bit human, one thing was whispering in his heart, and that was, whatever you do, don't tell him. If he's going to go mad, that's all right. I'll save you the bother. You don't have to worry anymore. But if you tell him, you might lose your head as well as he going mad. So don't tell him. If 
God's going to judge him. Just say, oh, well, well, I don't really know, but I think, you know, how people get out of things like that. White lies and all the rest of it that we all tell to try and somehow or other evade an issue and not tell someone the truth. But um, Daniel told him the truth, and the result was that Nebuchadnezzar became the child of God. Now, if that isn't a triumph in a system like Babylon, you must tell me what is. It's very much as if Khrushchev today, as a result of Brother Nee's uh, being brought before him, were overnight to become a Christian and publish a statement before the whole uh, Communist Party worldwide that he gave the glory to God, he'd been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what would happen. That's what it would be in modern terms. He'd heard something, he'd, something had happened to him, he turned to the Lord, and now he made it public before the whole nation and nations over which he had authority that he had become a Christian. That was the wonderful end of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is the one that Daniel had been faithful through all these tests. Now we have the first two visions of Daniel in chapter 7 and chapter 8. The four wild beasts in chapter 7 was when he was 84, 40 years after this. But he'd been absolutely proved faithful. And he had been put into the, oh, the most fiery of trials, in which most of us would have failed. And by the grace of God, he came through. Now, his faithfulness to the Lord and his suffering was to lead him to understanding. You know, you don't just see things. People always say well, about seeing the Lord and understanding things and so on. How do you understand? You don't just see easily. It generally comes as we are faithful to the Lord and as we go through different tests and so on, we begin to see things more deeply, more fully. This vision that was given to him when he was 84 years of age, after a lifetime of faithfulness, and we don't know anything about those silent years, except that often, I might say, the routine and quiet, hidden years where nothing seems to happen are more testing uh, than the other more dramatic times. Uh, Daniel had that amazing vision of the four wild beasts that came up out of the sea, which probably puzzled most of you. Uh, we shall deal with that in, uh, another evening. And then he also had a further vision of the ram and the he-goat. you remember that other amazing that he had, all of which was to do with world history down to the present day. From there, we find the fifth test. When he was 87 years of age, evidently, for some reason or another, Daniel was forgotten. Whether he was in semi-retirement or what had happened, we don't know. But Belshazzar had taken over the kingdom. He was acting as co-regent for his father, who was something of an archaeologist, as you remember from those uh, readings that we uh, read. And um, he was in charge of Babylon. You know the great feast he had, the thousands everywhere, drunkenness, debauchery, which was all part of the day. And whilst they were drinking, drinking, they asked for the Lord, the vessels of the temple, to be brought in. They drank out of them. And then suddenly a, a, a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall above the great lampstand. Then the, the <coughs> no one could... Uh, understand it, everyone was fearful, no one could interpret it, and at last the Queen Mother came in who remembered Daniel, and Daniel was sent for. Daniel saw the writing, he was 87 years of age, he immediately interpreted it and rebuked him. So it was a very courageous thing to do. 
that very night Belshazzar was slain and the thing that has always shaken all historians took place when overnight, literally overnight, the unbelievable and inconceivable thing happened when Babylon, which had existed for over 2,000 years, suddenly crumbled and vanished off the face of the earth and the Persian Empire came into being. Now Daniel at that very night told them that was what was happening he had no idea. He didn't know that outside the gates already the river Euphrates was being diverted from its course and the bed of the river was being used to, to feed in the troops under the walls. Now if we come to the next one which was Daniel's um, prayer ministry in Daniel 9. He was 88 when he prayed that remarkable prayer in Daniel 9. You remember when he prayed and prayed. And now I want to just connect up something which most people don't realize. Do you remember the lion's den? Why did Daniel go into the lion's den? Because an edict was issued that no one was to pray for 30 days except to King Darius. Now, why was Daniel so bothered about prayer at the time? After all, he could have let go, surely, for a month. Uh, we all know that we can pray inwardly. We don't have to do it outwardly, so why not let go of it for a month? Because Daniel had suddenly discovered in the books, according to Daniel 9, that the 70 years was up, and he was fasting in sackcloth and ashes to get hold of the Lord with his promise to bring it into being. And it was at that point that the edict was issued. So it brings that remarkable thing of the return of the people to the land uh, is linked up with that edict. It was an attempt at the enemy, somehow or other, to stop the people from ever getting back. You remember what happened? Daniel refused to bow down to the edict. He opened his windows as usually prayed in the uh, so that if they wished to spy on him, they could, and the result was he was thrown into the lion's den. He had already been made one of the three presidents of the kingdom. There were 120 um, satraps, as they were called, lesser governors, and there were three presidents of the governors, and Daniel was one of them. Now, the King Darius wanted to make him the uh, first president of the whole empire. And that's no, he couldn't get above that position. That was the most exalted position in the Persian Empire. The lion's den was the end of all that. The king, you know, if you read the story himself, wanted to save him, but he couldn't do it. Daniel was engaged in a ministry of prayer that was more important to him than being first president of the Persian Empire. And when it came to a conflict between either ruling over millions and millions of people from India to Rome, he preferred to let go all of that and engage in a prayer that could cost him his life in the lion's den and see the purpose of God realized through it uh, than anything else. The result was, you know, the lions didn't do anything of the kind. They slept quite happily with Daniel. And he was brought up the next day without any hurt whatsoever. But all those who had accused him were, set, were, were instead thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel was established and there was a state decree. From that we get the last recorded chapters of Daniel, the last visions in chapter 10, 11 and 12 come after that. Now that's the, that's the chronological order of Daniel. And if you see it in that light, you begin to understand two or three things. You begin to see how each crisis is linked with his visions. 
there seems to be a crisis, a deliverance, and then he sees something. And then there's a further crisis, and a further deliverance, and he sees something more. It's a remarkable link-up, uh, Daniel's life, and the way that it's all, it all holds together. I wonder how much of Cyrus's decree was Daniel, uh, was Daniel, humanly speaking, responsible for. You know that tremendous decree which allowed the, the people to go back to the land and the temple to be rebuilt and the city and so on. I wonder how much uh, was responsible. Why did Cyrus, how did Cyrus, for instance, know that he was mentioned by name in the book of Isaiah? Two or three hundred years before, a prophet had mentioned him, Cyrus, my servant, who shall say to Jerusalem, be thou inhabited and be thou rebuilt? Who told Cyrus? Josephus says that someone, um, we believe it to be Daniel, took the scriptures and showed Cyrus his own name. In, in scripture, prophesied 200 years or more before as being the one who would give a decree. And the result was, says Josephus, that Cyrus said, very well, I make the decree. Who formulated the decree? Who put it into, uh, shall we say, godly language? You read it in Ezra chapter 1. It's in language that we know, we understand. Who did it? Surely the first president of the Persian Empire. Who was next to the king? Who had the ear of the king? Who influenced the king? Do you see? And there's much more in the book of Daniel than you see on the surface. When you begin to look into it, it becomes really very, very interesting. Whatever happens, we know that Daniel lived, overlived the return to the land by two years at least. That we can see in, in chapter 10, verse 1, where it says the third year of Cyrus was the last recorded vision that he had when he was 92 years of age. So Daniel was 90 when the people returned back to the land. He didn't go with them. And we ought also just to remember that in his earlier years, his contemporaries were Jeremiah, Baruch, Obadiah, and Ezekiel. And in his last years, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Haggai, and Zechariah were his contemporaries. So it's rather wonderful that this man with his long life linked up Jeremiah and Ezekiel with Zerubbabel and Zechariah and Haggai. So the two great arms of recovery are brought together in Daniel. You know, we've said such a lot about preparatory ministries. These, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, in Daniel, they, they, Daniel brings them all together. They were long since gone to be with the Lord uh, when uh, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Zechariah and Haggai came on the scene. And what's the key to the book of Daniel? That's something about its background. A remarkable background uh, when really you look into it. It puts the whole book into a different light when you see it like that. There are a lot of very fascinating little side lights and side waves uh, in uh, the study of the book of Daniel. But what is the key to the book of Daniel? The whole book of Daniel breathes the sovereignty of God. Well, that sounds a very, very theological phrase. But you know, when we really begin to understand something of the sovereignty of God, our lives begin to take on a different shape, different light. Compromise and things like that don't become something that we're, oh, we've got to do it. But suddenly we begin to see that we can bring the sovereignty of God into a living relationship with our tiny little lives if we're only not compromised. But only be devoted to the Lord, 
we can bring the whole might of heaven into our side, onto our side, not for what we want, not simply like that, not for selfish reasons, but simply that if we open ourselves up to the Lord, suddenly we discover that we are with the Lord. And when we're with the Lord, the Lord is with us. And all kinds of little, I was going to say delights, little gifts, little things the Lord does for those who honour him. You know, there's no truer word than in the book of Proverbs, those that honour me, I will honour. When we dishonour the Lord, the Lord just doesn't honour us. When we honour the Lord, the Lord honours us. When we give to him the first fruits of our substance, then our barns and vats are overflowing with bed with plenty. It's always the same. If you want to know a miserly, poverty-stricken, narrow, straightened, limited life, just compromise and get everything you can for yourself and keep all you've got. If you want to know anything of the other, of the sovereignty of God working with you and for you, you've got to let go of it all. Now, we're very slow to learn this lesson, but the book of Daniel is full of it. Here was a, a fellow, a young lad, who, could, who stood to lose everything that he could have if he ate a little bit, uh, if, if he didn't eat that food. Why, he'd got before him a glorious career. I can hear the devil just saying, but Daniel, Daniel, don't, don't, uh, don't be silly now, don't be silly. Go on, eat the food. Why, Daniel, if you do that, I can see you rising to great heights in the, in the Babylonian Empire. I can see you wielding tremendous influence for your people, Daniel. Why, don't throw it all away for a little bit of food. Why, even Moses wouldn't want you to do that. If Moses saw the state of your relatives and your people in exile, he would say to you, don't be silly, Daniel. Eat the food. God doesn't bother about that. Far more important things at present to worry about is the sustenance and preservation of the people themselves. But you see, it was a question of the sovereignty of God. If Daniel had done it, the Lord just couldn't have really, he would have blessed him. But he couldn't have been with him. Daniel would not do it. And because of that, he brought the sovereignty of God into a living union with his life, which meant that Daniel was, as it were, the apple of God's eye. Let them touch Daniel, they were touching the Lord. The whole of heaven came in. You know, when you look through this book, you find courts in heaven and holy ones and watchers and angels flying here and there. And a tremendous amount of heavenly activity over this man who is called, oh man, greatly beloved. The whole of heaven was excited about Daniel. Well, I, I must say, he's a very rare case. Uh, when we look at ourselves and we look at the story of God's people, uh, Daniel is a rare instance. Are you one of those singular, rare instances of uncompromising devotion to the Lord? So heaven was excited. And whenever they addressed Daniel, they always said the same thing, oh man, greatly beloved. That's a beautiful word, it's a, a, a touching uh, title for this man, a man greatly beloved. Heaven itself got excited about Daniel, and evidently when he started to pray, you've no idea the, the activity that went on up yonder. Uh, it says that Daniel was told to come down the moment he heard him praying, and uh, another place, the, uh, the prince of Persia stood up and withstood uh, Gabriel, and he had to call in Michael, to the archangel, to help him, and all kinds of things happened. Daniel didn't know much about that at all. All Daniel knew was he was praying, and his prayer wasn't getting answered very quickly. 
He had no idea that there in the unseen was a tremendous battle going on with archangels all taking up the uh, weapons over it. Oh yes, Gabriel said to him, three weeks I've been hindered in answering your prayer. I was sent on my way three weeks ago, but three weeks I've been hindered. Now that's a little uh, sidelight into what Paul calls hosts of wicked spirits in the heavens, world rulers of darkness, principalities and powers. Those things we're told to put on the whole armour of God, we don't know much about them, do we? But they're all there. Because we don't know much about them, it doesn't mean they're not there and not uh, very busy. They're all there and busy. Well, what about the sovereignty of God? Well, you see it, the whole book breathes the atmosphere of the sovereignty of God. It comes out in prayer. Every time Daniel prays, he seems to, to speak about the sovereignty of God. Then you find it in state decrees. You find that heathen, unsaved autocrats, dictators, are rolling out, producing state decrees about the God of heaven, who rules. Uh, whose is the might and the power and so on. It's so the sovereignty of God, the Lord just doing something. It comes out in testimony. Daniel says to, to Nebuchadnezzar, I've got the interpretation of dream that you might know that there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets to men. And every time Daniel is brought in, he's a testimony, all their testimony, it's God, God, God. The three, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, when they go into the fiery furnace, what do they say? That you might know, O king, that our God is able to deliver. But, and they didn't say, we don't think he's able, but if he isn't able, well, it's too bad. They said, but if he does not will to deliver us, to, to deliver us so be it. Oh, we'd prefer to go into the furnace, uh, King uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We'd prefer to go into the furnace and die in the furnace. And know that it was the will of God that we should be so martyred. But don't you get away with it, Nebuchadnezzar, that, that, uh, that God is not able to deliver. All the book is to do with the sovereignty of God. On the one side you've got the king saying, Who is able to deliver you from me? I am great king, Nebuchadnezzar. No one can deliver you out of my hands. What about the gods of the other nations? They didn't deliver them. And then you've got the Most High, as Daniel calls it. All the time delivering. Well, you've got it everywhere. You've got it in the deliverances. You've got the most remarkable deliverances in this book. Fiery furnaces, lions' dens, and many other things are the deliverances that are recorded. And each, in each case, it's an impossible situation. It's an impossible situation. Sovereignty of God is expressed in these impossible situations where the Lord himself just steps in and delivers them. What a wonderful thing it is. The Lord doesn't deliver them from them. He delivers them through them. When they get into the fiery furnace, there was a fourth light unto the mm. Son of God, the Son of Man, who walked with them. They weren't delivered from it. They just walked in the midst of it and came out without any smell of burning or, or any singeing at all. And so it was with the fiery de the, um, the den of lions. The Daniel went into it, but an angel was there who was just quietly, it says, shutting up the, the mouths of the lions. They went into them, and they went through these things. Uh, the Lord delivered them in the situations, not from the situations. That's an important point to say. And then you'll find the sovereignty of God in the, in, in the visions of world history. 
Or we've got the we've got our own history. Uh, Daniel saw it all. He saw all the world empires. And today we in this country are the product of three, four great civilizations: the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greece, the, the the Greek, and the Roman. You all know that, don't you? We are a product of those four great civilizations, which of which today in our country. Um, we, have, we have an intermingling of the whole four which has produced what we know as Western culture and civilization. Daniel saw it all, and there are times when it seems to be absolutely all-powerful and all-sovereign, but in every instance he saw the whole thing toppled to the ground. One by one, these different empires are brought to the ground uh, and they are destroyed. Until at last the kingdom of God, the sovereign kingdom of God, is brought in, which is eternal. So it doesn't matter whether it's personal, corporate, present or future, whether it's to do with the visible or the invisible, or whether it's to do with the church or the world. Everywhere in the book of Daniel you will see above it all the Most High, ruling everything. The title of the Lord used in Daniel is very... Uh, illustrative of this very thing. He is called the Most High, it's used 13 times and is the most common title used of the Lord. Daniel doesn't use God, doesn't use the other terms, he uses the term the Most High, which again is uh, speaks of the power and the sovereignty of the Lord. And it's whether, whether it be in delivering his own, or whether it is in realizing his purpose, or whether it is in bringing in the Christ or establishing his eternal kingdom or whether it is in his final vindication and the destruction of all evil everywhere you turn you will find God is omnipotent he's above it all he allows the most remarkable situations to develop that's the perhaps the paradox of it and that's what the book of Daniel teaches us. Nothing can really hinder him. Every obstacle he overcomes. He turns all the evil to good account. He uses the very viciousness of Satan and of anti-God forces to work his own will. So that you see, every time they got hold of Daniel, they were in actual fact pushing him up the ladder. Every time they tried to, to destroy Daniel, in actual fact, they destroyed themselves. You read right through the instances. Every time they tried to touch Daniel or the three, they themselves get destroyed and Daniel and the three go higher. God lets the viciousness of those forces that are evil and against him come out to the full and uses them. Now this displays the sovereignty of God. He, can, he allows things in order to use them and when they've been used to the full they're destroyed and the things that they, the people they're trying to wipe out and eliminate are the people that they are used to further and advance always well it's an all very very interesting when you look at it like that it's seen in that light uh, Daniel with its furnaces and its dens and its ferocious beasts rising up out of the sea depicting the world, its colossal, powerful image depicting an all-powerful all world empires and systems, 
seen like that and its portrayal of all that is antichrist, antichrist, blatantly and insidiously. Its portrayal of the whole thing and the balance so seemingly on the side of evil, so overwhelmingly on the side of evil, so it seems. When it's seen in the light that I just mentioned, it becomes a hallelujah call. Every single step meant to pulverize God's people turns back to the destruction of the enemy and the furthering of God's own purpose. Well, you can see that in the crucifixion of Christ. You don't look at it in that light, do you? Who crucified Christ? God? No, the devil. How did the devil crucify Christ? Through our hands. He crucified. Oh, you would have said if you had been with me, as all the disciples said, as the mother of Jesus said, as all those faithful ones that stood with him right through to even to the end, the little group that were there at the end, it was the end. It was the end. Here was the viciousness of evil. Here was all that was anti-God come out from all the centuries of human history to destroy God. But what did it do? God stood back. He allowed it to pulverize his son, to smash him, absolutely smash him. So that his son, the son himself cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's how far it went. And that became the salvation and the redemption of the world. The viciousness of Satan. The antagonism, the hatred of evil used to work out God's own purpose. That's why the Lord Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That was what he meant. Satan was going to be used to, to, to lift up, as it were, the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus would, by, by becoming sin, would take upon him the very character of the serpent become, as it were, a serpent in nature, in order that we who got the serpent nature could be delivered and saved. Well, that's it. There's no book in the whole of the Old Testament which is therefore more encouraging than the book of Daniel. Because we are going to live in days, and oh, you've got children, remember what I say, we are going to live in days which are going to get, oh, indescribably worse than anything you and I have lived through. All around you can see now the, the decline and the slide away into things that even 20, 30 years ago people would never have dreamt would have been possible in this country. But it's happening, the whole motion, all the wheels are set for the downward decline, which has always marked the end of every single civilization. Well, some people say, oh, you're just being a scaremonger, you're just frightening everyone. But the thing is, if you've only, you've only got to read it with a balanced perspective and judgment, and you can see that something has started which no power on earth can stop now. The thing is on the last lap of its journey. You, you who have children, and all of us for that matter, who, who are going to live through these days, are going to see hideous things in the last day. Oh, it's all in the world. We realize it's there. It's not going to be nice. It's not going to be lovely. The only hope that we've got 
is to be absolutely faithful to the Lord and seek to bring up children and to, and to, to win everyone else we can by being a testimony ourselves to the sovereignty of God. Because in these last days, there are going to be more and more people who will become disillusioned, disappointed, and will lose any anchor that they have and not know where to turn. Where is going to be the hope? I say it will be here, as in the book of Daniel, in a people who, in it all, though seemingly given up by God himself, are an absolute testimony to the sovereignty of God, that beyond and above it all there is one who is going to turn the whole thing in the end to his own good account. Now do believe me in what I say. The people of God have lived through these phases before and they have only ever been used by the prophets to describe the last phase of humanity. The last phase of humanity is going to gather up all the worst features of every other phase down through the centuries of time into itself and become one last holocaust of evil. So let's remember that. Here, Daniel, this book of Daniel is a book that, that, that is tremendously encouraging because here is the might of Satan, here is the hatred of Satan, here is the viciousness of Satan, here is the antagonism of Satan, and yet Satan can't do anything, really. Why, every time he takes hold of God's people, they just, they just he advances them, he furthers them, he increases them, he honors them. He can't do anything. But if they compromise, they are lost. If they compromise their love, whilst they hold themselves before the Lord and give themselves to the Lord, the whole sovereignty of God is with them and for them. Well, I think we will have to end there. There's a lot more that we could say because there we must remember that Daniel is not just comprised of prophecy. Not just comprised of prophecy. The first six chapters are historical narrative. The last six chapters are prophetical, full of prophecy. And now here's a wonderful thing. The first six chapters are linked to the last six by, by chapter two, which is prophetical. And the last six chapters, which are prophetical, are linked to the first six by chapter nine, which is narrative. Do you understand? So the two great sections are wedded together. Although in the main, the first six chapters are narrative and the, the second six chapters are prophetical. Now, why? Why this? In both sections, we see the sovereignty of the Lord. In the first six chapters, we see the sovereignty of the Lord in the fiery ordeals and trial of Daniel and the three. The Lord not only delivering them, but working out his purpose through them. Now you take Daniel 9. What is the Lord doing through Daniel? He's an old man now, look. He's 88. You'd have thought he would have been better lying down on bed uh, and reserving his strength. But what's Daniel doing when he's a man of 88? The Lord's using him to effect the greatest deliverance in the history of God's people, getting them back to Jerusalem. That old godly man is praying and praying and praying and praying, and he's saying the same thing over and over again. He's got hold of something in the book of Jeremiah, and he won't let the Lord go. He can't 
Pardon me, Samuel is not heard quickly. But something's going on in heaven. And Gabriel is being sent to him to answer his prayer and to give him a revelation that not only is his prayer answered and they're going to go back, the decree is going to be given, but uh, uh, he's going to see a lot more. He's going to see right down to the coming of the Messiah and beyond the Messiah to the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, that's what happened. Do you understand? The Lord is using their trial. But just wait. What happens? The devil's going to stop that going back to Jerusalem. So what does he do? He gets a whole little group of the, go of the governors, the 120, a group of the 120, and say, come on, you don't want Daniel as the first president of the empire? Right, he's praying. He's all bothered about prayer these last few days. He's there, you can see him. He's got his upper window open to Jerusalem. He's there three times a day, old man of 88. Now then, get an edict. We've got him. We've got him now. Get an edict. Now, the rule of the Persians was different to the Babylonians. It wasn't autocratic, it was aristocratic. Which meant that once the decree was passed, it couldn't be altered by one man. It had to be altered by the whole 120. The whole 120, it says, thronged into the presence, like a mob, into the presence of King Darius. And they said, oh, king, live forever. Pass an edict, will you? We want to establish authority in a new way in, in Babylon. Now, they don't let anyone pray for 30, years, uh, for 30 uh, days except to you. One month... Why Jesus do it? Signed it. Wasn't very bothered about it or anything to establish his authority. So I can signature, stamp it with a seal, and that was that. The law of the Medes and Persians, which ought not, it was done. That was Daniel in the bag. Nothing on our earth could save Daniel. He was finished. And not only was he finished, but the satanic kingdom knew something which the earthly kingdom didn't know. The whole move back to Jerusalem and to the rebuilding of the house of God and the coming of the Messiah was jeopardized. In one single stroke. They didn't know anything about it. This was all in the unseen. They only knew that they wanted to get Daniel out of the way. And Daniel was an old man who liked praying, a sentimental old man who liked to pray three times a day, poor old thing. Now we'll get him. He's out of the way. Dangerous old man. Get him out of the way. But it really, it was the return to Jerusalem that was in Satan's life. Well, I expect Satan worked on Daniel. If he worked on the others, I have no doubt he worked on Daniel a good deal more. He probably said, no, Daniel, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Lord Sovereign, Daniel, Lord Sovereign. Doesn't need your prayer, Daniel. You just stop praying. You don't want to go in the lion's den. That's better for you to be alive. Why, I think you might live to help them back into the land. But Daniel says, none of that. I'm not stopping praying. The, my work is prayer and testimony. All right. You know what, it, what happened. He went into the lion's den. And he came out of the lion's den. And he went on praying, as far as I can tell. They never stopped him. Those that accused him made a very nice meal to the lions. Daniel went on with his work. And what was the result? Through Daniel and his sufferings and his deliverance, God fulfilled his purpose. He used the very means meant to destroy Daniel to further him, and the result was that all Daniel's opponents and rivals were wiped out. He didn't want them wiped out, but they were wiped out. So when Cyrus came to the throne, all Daniel's jealous rivals were gone. 
Cyrus was left to the gentle, godly influence of Daniel. We don't read that in the Word, but it's all there. That may be the background of, of Cyrus issuing a decree. So I want you just to see then, here in these six chapters you've got this, he's using, that's just an instance, he's using these different things, the very forces and means meant to destroy them, the Lord is using to advance them and to fulfil his own purpose. And in the second six chapters, the, core, the whole course of world history, the Lord again is seen in the visions of Daniel working out his own purpose and using the very forces which seem so vicious and anti-God, using them to prepare his service. Oh, when the Greeks came, you didn't know, did you, but the Lord was using all the intelligence of the Greeks to pave the way for the Messiah. And when the Romans came, they were the, well, I was going to say they were godsend, because they built roads all over the Roman Empire, which were just built for Paul. That was all so that the messengers of the gospel could get to the far ends of the Roman Empire, all was absolutely just as the Lord wanted it. He was using the most anti-God forces to work out his own purpose so that at the right time the Messiah might come. Oh, you've got so many things. Why, I could go on and on, but you know Caesar Augustus? What he did, he issued a decree which had caused an awful upset, that everyone was to be taxed and they were all to be enrolled. The Lord used that thing that caused so much upset and so much sacrifice to so many people to bring about the birth of the Lord Jesus. You see, all these things are used. All the time the Lord's shoveling, you can't get beyond him. We don't mind whether the Stalins, Hitlers, Mussolinis, Mao Zedongs, or all the rest of them. They can all come and they will all go. For a time, we might all be in their hands and some of us might lose our lives as a result of being in their, in their hands. But they will come to their end and they will come to a sticky end in every case. Because you see above them and beyond them is one who is ruling the affairs of men and is judging everyone according to the standards of the Lord Jesus. When their time comes and God has used them to effect his purpose, they are put aside. And if that is so of men, it's much more so of systems. In the end, when the Lord has used this world system to its full and produced every born-again believer that it's possible to produce, brought every single one out of it that he can, then he'll end the whole thing that will go up in smoke and flame. And we won't. We won't. They will. We won't. Because we shall be with the Lord like Daniel. If the whole thing goes up in smoke and flame, don't you worry. You'll be like those three in the fiery furnace. There'll be a fourth with us, and it won't touch us. What destroys them has no power over us. Oh, don't think the God, God of our God is any different to the God of Daniel. Don't be afraid at all of the end. I'm going to must leave it there, otherwise I'll go on and on and on. But you see, the book of Daniel is a complex book. It says that the vision's troubled his head, but there's not as much, half as much as they've troubled everyone else's heads ever since. Uh, they exercised him, they concerned him, they troubled him, they disturbed him. Even he couldn't understand what he saw until he was given the interpretation. There's such a lot in this book, in this book of Daniel and I trust that if we can next week, we will just complete the little more that we have to say about the key, and then we'll be able to go right on to the outline of the book and just have a look at some of these tremendous things 
uh, that are defined for us in the Book of Daniel. I hope you're not too tired. So I do hope you've got hold of the lesson this evening, that above and beyond all the things that are around us, whether internationally, nationally, corporately as a company, or personally as individuals, God rules. He is above it all. We have something that Daniel didn't really fully see or understand. He saw the Ancient of Days. He saw him set on a throne. But we have a revelation that even Daniel has. not. We have a revelation of Jesus at the right hand of God, seated far above all principality and power, and every name that is named not only in this world, but in that which is to come. That's the revelation we have. The sovereignty in the Lord. Well, maybe it'll teach us that compromise is not just one of those ghastly things that somehow the frightness of, oh dear Lord, wants to make us miserable and cheerless and everything else, not at all. All the Lord wants us to do is to get rid of the old serpent in us so that he can commit himself to us and get us committed to himself in a way that will mean our protection, security, and preservation all the time. May the Lord just help us to understand that.